Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 19, going through the book of Acts. Uh, we're going to read two passages. First of all, Acts 19 and verses 11 through 20, so we can read it in context. Now, God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? When the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. And if you would flip over to Revelation chapter 2, we'll read a passage that was written to this same church about 10 years later. Revelation chapter 2, and beginning at verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars, and you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. You may be seated. Last time we were in Acts uh, 19, uh, we looked at verses 11 through 20, and we're concentrating on the spiritual warfare principles uh, that were going on there. And there were several of you uh, have asked me if I would dig a little bit more deeply into verses 17 uh, through 20, and that's what I'm going to do today. I want to especially look at the seven marks of an overcomer. I think some of you wanted me to deal with the burning of the books and, you know, what is that? And and we'll look at that some today. But I I think what's most significant here, uh, we looked at our war against Satan, but we're going to be looking at our war against our flesh, which really does tie in with the spiritual warfare. And there are seven marks of an overcomer. There's uh, five marks of relapse, which we're going to be looking at from Revelation uh, chapter 2. And I think there's a lot that we can learn by comparing those two passages, because all across America today, uh, we have people who used to be overcomers, used to have very close fellowship with God, and yet we have found them falling and destroyed on uh, various uh, rocks that have made them shipwrecked. Some of the the rocks have been uh, uh, pornography, addictions, uh, other kinds of uh, selfishness. And we're not just talking about lay leaders here. We're talking about pastors. It's just amazing over the past 20 years how many pastors have been taken out of the ministry because they have not guarded their hearts on these issues that we're talking about. Uh, I know of a pastor who was absolutely destroyed in his ministry because of drugs uh, and he just could not shake this crack, but part of it was because he lacked some of the principles we're going to be looking at here today, especially the principle that was willing to open himself up and to have accountability and to humble his pride. I know of um, another minister who was caught skimming funds for years. He had been skimming funds off of the uh, church 
uh, uh, accounts. Another minister who fell into adultery and had to leave the ministry. Now, you all know that pornography is rife all across America, but it has crept into the church of Jesus Christ as well, and it's taken many, many people uh, captive. And there's other ways in which Christians have started off with just tiny little compromises, which led to more, and before they knew it, they were completely held captive by sin. And I, what I want to do is I want to look at how do we get out and how do we stay out? How do we detect, you know, when it is that those dangerous signals are coming uh, that, that indicate some uh, relapse? Uh, and I could give other stories. World Magazine and others have talked about people who were not sleazeballs at all. These guys weren't when they fell into sin. These were upright Christians, people who really wanted to please the Lord. But like Ephesus, they let their guard down. Now, what I want you to do before we dig into Acts 19, I want to give you some encouragements from the book of Revelation. Because over and over again, Revelation not only lets us know that we can be overcomers, but encourages us it is definitely worth the fight uh, and the, the difficulty of doing so. And we're going to start with uh, the passage that we just read and uh, take a look first of all at verse 7. Chapter 2, verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now, Adam and Eve had been banished from the garden, banished from fellowship. And what this is saying is that when you are overcomers, you will never be banished from God's fellowship. Look at verse 11. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Now, that's just a little hint that he's indicating every believer will eventually be an overcomer if you're truly a believer. But we can go up and down in our Christian walk, but he's saying uh, overcomers uh, have eternal life. Then take a look at verse 17. He was an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Now that is an incredible promise, because the hidden manna was the manna that Moses had taken uh, one time, and he put into the Ark of the Covenant, and God miraculously preserved it and kept it from rotting. And uh, it stayed in the Ark of the Covenant during the duration, and it was placed in the Holy of Holies. Now, what's unusual about this metaphor here is that only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. He could only go in once a year, but even he could not eat of this hidden manna. Absolutely forbidden. He couldn't even peek inside of the Ark of the Covenant or he would be struck down dead. And so what he is promising to overcomers is he is saying, your relationship with me can be so tight, you're going to have a closer relationship than even the high priest had in the Old Testament. That is remarkable. And then he says, I'll give you um, a white stone with your name written on it, which is an invitation stone uh, to the banquet. And so uh, it's just one of many promises to convince you. It is worthwhile to have this kind of a fight to be overcomers. Take a look at verse uh, 26. It says, uh, And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end... To him I will give power over the nations. And then he quotes a scripture applied to Christ. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels. As I also have received from my Father. What an amazing promise. He is saying that you can receive exactly the same authority and power that Jesus did. Jesus has been given this rod of iron to smite and dash the nations at any time. So what an incredible thing it would be if the church was full of such overcomers. It would make a huge difference among the nations. Now that is what he is, uh, what he is promising there. Take a look at chapter 3 and verse 5. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He will not be ashamed of you. Uh, look at verse 12. 
says, uh, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. So hopefully you're beginning to get the impression that God really wants every believer to be an overcomer. This is really a definition of what Rodney spoke about earlier. Everyone who is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. So if you got faith, you're going to be an overcomer. Now there are these ups and downs that he's warning us against, and not everybody in the church at that point was being an overcomer, but he's saying this is God's call upon Christians. Okay, look at verse 20. Uh, one, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So he's promising enormous authority in a Christian's life. Now, why was it that the sons of Sceva back in Acts chapter 19 uh, were not able, even though they used the name of Christ, they were not able to have any success in casting out these demons. Instead, they were overcome uh, by the demons. Well, the reason is that in the book of Acts, there is no neutrality. You are either overcoming or you are being overcome. The only two possibilities. There can't be any middle road where you're just sitting there enjoying yourself. You're neither being overcome nor overcoming. These are the only ways you see it in the book of Acts. You're either overcoming or you are being uh, overcome. Uh, Look at chapter 19 and verse 20. It says there, so the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. It prevailed. Contrast that with verse 16. Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed, same word, prevailed against them, so that they fled from the house uh, naked and wounded. Same Greek word. The sons of Sceva used the name of Jesus, but they don't have the power of Jesus. In contrast, the believers of verses 17 through 20, they not only have the name of Jesus, but they have the power of Jesus present as well. And so what is it that makes them prevail here that they're lacking in Revelation chapter 2? In Revelation chapter 2, they've fallen away. Those are the contrasts we're going to be looking at. And um, uh, throughout this book, you see similar contrasts to this. Peter tells Ananias and Sapphira that Satan has filled their hearts and captured them They had failed to be overcomers. In Acts 8, Peter tells Simon, I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. So here's professing believers who are poisoned by bitterness in bondage to sin. You are poisoned by bitterness, bound by iniquity. 2 Peter 2.19 speaks of pastors. It says, while they promise them liberty, are themselves slaves of corruption. I think that's a remarkable scripture in light of today's controversies, you know, over grace and all of those types of things, who promise them liberty, but are themselves slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. And so there are even upright, respectable Christians who could easily be described by that verse as well as the next verse, which talks about those who have escaped from the pollutions of the world getting entangled in those pollutions once again. And uh, so I want us to take this seriously. It's not just sleazeballs out there who get uh, caught up into sin again. Any of us can get caught if we are not careful. Let's start at verse 17. Acts uh, 19, verse 17. Acts 19, verse 17. uh, The demonic has overpowered these Jews, and the people could see that those Jews are lacking a power that Paul has So that it says, this became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Now, them all includes the believers. These believers have fear, and it enables verse 18 to be true. And many who had believed came, confessing and telling their deeds. That takes courage. (laughs) It takes incredible courage to confess and tell all of your bad deeds to other people who could rip you to shreds, use this against you. But you see, those who have the fear of God in verse 17 don't have any fear of man in verse 18. The two are polar opposites of each other. And I think that the fear of God is one of the most fundamental marks 
uh, of a believer. Now, it's popular nowadays to emphasize God's love in such a way that it's exclusive of fear. And people will say, after all, Scripture is quite clear, perfect love casts out fear. Well, Rodney, uh, what was it, two or three weeks ago, pointed out there's two different Greek words. It casts out dread, but it does not cast out reverence. That uh, other people object and they say, well, how can you come boldly to the throne of grace if you've got fear and trembling of God? Those are mutually exclusive categories, but they're not. Hebrews 4.16 does say, let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may, may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. But exactly the same chapter commands us, let us fear. So it commands us to come boldly and it commands us to fear. It doesn't see those as contradictory, uh, contradictory uh, concepts at all. In fact, the only way we can approach boldly is as we come clothed in the righteous garments of Christ. Last week we looked at that under uh, Zechariah chapter 3 where Joshua the high priest, his ministry was utterly ineffective because of the filthy sin that was on him. He was a believer, but Satan was standing at his right hand using all of those things as legal ground to oppose him. And it's only as he's clothed in the righteousness of Christ that he has success. And so over and over again in Hebrews, it warns us, yes, come boldly, but come, it says, with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, some of you older folks have heard this illustration before, and I just beg your indulgence because I don't have the creativity that Rodney does in coming up with new illustrations all the time. Uh, but I like this illustration. Uh, I think it does carry this concept rather well. When I grew up in Ethiopia, uh, my dad and I uh, had between 17 and 20 beehives, and all of them except for one were the African style, where you kind of weave this big, long, six-foot... Um, tube that they will build their combs in. You put waterproof leaves on the outside and then you smear cow manure all over the outside of that. Now that may seem gross, but it makes it wonderful. It makes it tight, makes it waterproof. And then you hang it up in a tree. And you need to make sure when you're climbing that tree to get the honey that you're well dressed. Um, I have a lot of fun stories uh, uh, that happened with uh, the bees, but these were not the tame Bees that we have here in America, the Italian variety, they were the very aggressive African bees. And one of the hives actually had the African killer bees. Now, these bees would sting you with no provocation whatsoever. Uh, they'd come out of nowhere, covet an animal or a human. You can hardly even see their skin and just sting them to death. And so you had a lot of respect for these bees, but I love these bees because they produced even more honey than the regular African bees did. And uh, we asked our parents, can we keep these? These are good. Uh, great bees, good producers. And uh, what happened is that uh, these bees chased every man and animal off of the compound uh, in Waka, and my parents were not very pleased. So my dad... <laughs> killed the bees with a, a, a stick of sulfur uh, that evening, which preserves the honey, but it kills off the bees very, very effectively. But anyway, I really appreciated these bees, but whenever I approached them, I wouldn't dare to approach them without being covered with gloves and layers of clothing and a hat and a mask and all of those types of things. And even when you had that, uh, there could be an adrenaline rush when your mask is completely covered and you're scraping the bees off and you can see the liquid coming out of their stinger as they're trying to sting you. They can't. But there's a lot of respect that you have for those bees. But I love those bees so long as I was clothed. That's the way it is with the Christian life. God loves us. We love Him. But there is such a vast difference between this transcendent God, this holy God, and we as sinners if we dared to approach Him without being clothed in the righteous garments of Christ, we would be cast into judgment. We would be terrified. When we come clothed in Christ, we can come with great boldness. Now, let me use another illustration along these lines that's maybe a little bit closer on the relational side. Children's relationship to Dad. Now, when a child is in rebellion against Dad... Uh, and the dad brings out the paddle, there can be some fear and trembling on the part of the child. But when the child is in right relationship with that dad, he can have so much fun with the dad. He can be all over the dad, sitting in his lap, wrestling with him, and he can come boldly to this throne of mercy, as it were. 
and uh, he need not fear the stab, but the fear of the paddle will keep him from crossing his father. And I think that is kind of the, 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 the analogy that the Hebrews uses, that of a father disciplining his children. Let me read you three examples. There's eight in Hebrews that commands us to fear God. Hebrews 10, he says, The Lord will judge his people. So we're not talking about pagans here. We're talking about people who can approach the throne of grace boldly. But he says, The Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Fearful for who? It's fearful for God's people when they're in rebellion against God. That's who it's fearful for. You don't mess around with God. This is one of the marks of an overcomer. You ought to be concerned if you have no fear of Him. In fact, Proverbs says the fear of the Lord is by the fear of the Lord that men depart from evil. Hebrews 11 speaks of Noah. Moved with godly fear. It moved him. It motivated him. It was a tremendous, and it should be in our lives, a tremendous motivator for holiness, just as the paddle can be a motivator for holiness in a, in a child's life. Hebrews 12:28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. He indicates that it's grace that enables us to have fear. This is utterly different than the conception some people have of grace that makes us indifferent to sin, just comfortable with sin, just didn't bother us at all. No, grace motivates us to worship Him and serve Him acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Let me read the whole section again. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. So those are some of the scriptures give a little bit of a background on why fear was so significant in Acts chapter 19. One of the books I've recommended to you quite a number of times is uh, the one by Ed Welch, When People Are Big and God is Small. And what that book indicates is that the fear of the Lord is at the heart of Christianity and the fear of God helps us to put off the fear of man and to put off pride and and insecurities and all of the things that uh, make us lack confidence and lack esteem. Uh, the God of most Christians is far too small and consequently the fear of man becomes very big in their eyes. See, we, have to, we feel like we have to perform before people. We have to look good uh, to other people. And when people are bigger than God in our eyes, we tend to feel a lot of shame before others and feel very little shame when we sin before God. Uh, scripture, let me give you a whole bunch of scriptures here. Scripture not only says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 9.10, but the scripture also links the fear of God with victory over enemies, 1 Samuel 11.7, uh, 2 Chronicles 14, verse 14, and chapter 17, verse 10. It links the fear of God with loyalty of heart, 2 Chronicles 19.9, Hatred for evil, Proverbs 8, verse 13. Tremendous confidence, Proverbs 14, verse 26. In fact, let me read that one for you. In the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence. Isn't that interesting? Why would the fear of the Lord bring strong confidence? Well, if your God is big enough to be feared, He can handle any problem that's thrown at you. And that's why the rest of the verse says his children will have a place of refuge. Let me read the whole verse. In the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence, and his children will have a place of refuge. Scripture, that's um, uh, Proverbs 14, verse 26. Scripture links the fear of the Lord with satisfaction in life. Proverbs 19, verse 23. Riches, honor, and life. Proverbs 22, verse 4. And many other things that the human heart longs for. So in Acts 19.17, when it says the fear of the Lord fell on all of them, it's indicating something very significant has happened. God's grace is producing something in them that's enabling them to be overcomers. Now, if you don't know much about the uh, fear of the Lord, and it's definitely not something that has uh, gripped your life, one of the sermon series that I strongly encourage you to get, and it's a long sermon series, quite a few different sermons, 
is by the Reformed Baptist preacher, Al Martin. I think we have it in our library. And the whole series is on the fear of the Lord. I think it will blow you out of the water. This is one of the most significant, important topics in the Scripture. By the time you are done listening to that series, I think you will, be, you will have such confidence in God and you will be rid of so much desire for the approval of men. It's just a wonderful, wonderful series. Fear of the Lord is what's going to keep you pure on the Internet because you're going to be thinking about what God's desires are, not what other people are thinking. It'll keep your eyes from wandering because you're going to realize what He's watching, not what other people are watching. Uh, the fear of the Lord will keep you from cheating. It is an absolutely essential ingredient. Here's the question. Do you have the fear of the Lord? Does the thought of rebelling against God make you tremble? It ought to. It ought to. Psalm 96.9, Tremble before Him all the earth. Now the second thing that we see in verse 17, and it actually uh, flows from fear, is that your motivation ought to be to please the Lord. It says, Fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. They wanted to do things because it would glorify Jesus, because it would please Him. Now, when people come to me for counseling, you know, outside the church, and many times even people inside the church, they don't come with this motivation. They don't say, oh, Pastor Kaiser, please, you've got to help me. I keep falling into sin. I want so much to please the Lord. Now, that's not usually what they're saying. When they come to me for counseling, they usually say, Pastor, I feel so miserable. You've got to help me feel good. Or, Pastor, uh, our marriage is about to fall apart. You've got to save our marriage. Or even worse yet, Pastor, you've got to fix my wife. She's driving me crazy. <laughs> it's something along... But that's man-centered. It's self-serving. A very selfish motivation and it will not carry you all the way through. Oh, sure, it may motivate you to do some things to get uh, things moving forward, but only a God-centered motive will carry you all the way through. Nor is it enough to work on your sanctification to please your spouse or to get somebody off of your back. We call that a social holiness. It's not measured against God. It's measured against men. So what happens when you've done just enough so that the other person feels okay or at least is keeping off your back? You quit growing. But if, if you've started with the first principle and the second one is your motivation is to please the Lord, you're never going to give up on pressing upward and that upward call that God has given to us in Christ Jesus. It's not social holiness is too shallow. You want God's pleasure upon you. You want to dig as deeply into his heart as you possibly can. Sometimes a person is motivated to do good because he's a leader, father, pastor, an elder, police officer, or something like that. And he thinks, oh, I probably better not do that because other people might see what I'm doing and I might be out of office or I might uh, be thought poorly of. That's not enough of a motivation. It's okay as far as it goes, but it does not deal with the root. And the root is the heart. Dr. Krabendam used to always say, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. That's where you've got to be uh, focusing your attention. And so this can be a second mark that you evaluate yourself on. Are you doing the right thing in your life simply because you're trying to please your wife? Now, it's a good thing to please your wife or to please your husband, but is that the only motivation? So you can please your wife or your husband because your desire is to please him, or you can do it just to have peace and the status quo. You've got to evaluate, am I God-centered or am I simply doing this to get pain relief. Third mark of an overcomer is sincerity instead of the presence of facades. Now You, you know what a facade is. Uh, in the old Wild West uh, movies, and you still see them in some of the downtown places that we, we drive through, they would have a one-story building, but the front that faces the street has a second story, or it looks like it's a second story, but you look on the side, there's nothing behind it. It's just a wall that goes up with fake windows and fake drapes sometimes even. And it's making that building look bigger and more grand than it really is. And sometimes banks would have that, but there were other buildings that had that as well. When you put up a facade for yourself, what you're thinking is, ooh, these people really expect such and such a behavior and you want to look good in the eyes of people and so you hide 
the real you from others so that you could look bigger, better, more important, more in control, more holy than you really are. These people did not have that. The moment you have a facade Christianity, it is a warning sign that uh, your holiness is not flowing from Christ, it's flowing from man, and consequently you could end up with a big crash at any time. And this is especially true of Christians who are on drugs or on pornography or some other socially not respectable sin. Now, it may be respectable out in the world, but in the church people, oh, what a sinner, you know. But all of us are sinners, right? All sins can be cleansed by the grace of Christ, but we tend to have this, this attitude, whew, I wouldn't dare to admit to an accountability partner I'm struggling with drugs or I'm struggling with pornography or struggling with something else like that. And it's so easy for these people to maintain a facade and uh, not uh, be willing to crucify their pride. Verse 18, many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Oh, that feels so awful. Telling all of those rotten deeds to somebody else, that could be so humiliating. But that's precisely the point. We are supposed to crucify our pride. We're called to crucify our pride. And God is not going to defend you from falling if you don't crucify your pride. It says in James, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so transparency and a willingness to seek help, to admit wrong, to repent of our sins is ironically what makes us stronger, makes us uh, less vulnerable to satanic attack. Whereas where we hide those and try to put on a facade, don't worry, everything's okay. Yep, I'm doing fine. And we give all of those cliches. That's what ironically makes us subject to satanic attack and uh, vulnerable. So don't think you've arrived. Don't pretend that you're perfect. If there is sin, get an accountability partner and say, look, you know, I'm struggling with uh, such and such a sin and I really need you to pray for me and I want you to call me up, you know, once, twice, three times a week and ask me where I'm at on these issues. I really want to grow. Okay. Fourth mark. A willingness to burn your bridges. We went to a movie uh, yesterday called, um, yeah, what was it called? Fireproof. And um, the way he burned his bridges metaphorically was he took the baseball bat, you know, to his computer because he was uh, really having trouble with porn. Uh, there are other ways. Here, they burned their books, very literally. But burning your bridges is a metaphor that comes from a tactic that some Roman soldiers had used where... They were worried about their soldiers, whether or not they would hold up. And there are other uh, generals and commanders who did this. They would march their people over the bridge into enemy territory. They'd burn down the bridge, which in effect was saying, win or die. <laughs> there is no escape. You're not going back over here. And since uh, they knew they had no escape, there was nothing lost to put their all into the battle. And they knew if they didn't, they would die. And so it made them bold. It made them very daring. Apparently, Cortez did this with the troops when they came over in their ships. Uh, he burned the ships. said, there's no way out. We're here to conquer. In economics and in other areas, you hear the expressions, don't burn your bridges behind you, right? And I think in economics, that's a good idea. Uh, you want to have uh, minimization of risk. Uh, you don't want to burn your bridges. Have everything in one basket. But when it comes to sin, you absolutely must burn your bridges behind you. You cannot be having straddling the fence, trying to ride in both uh, camps. It shows whether you're serious about fighting sin or whether you plan to come back into the sin when things get uncomfortable. And I think too many Christians, they've convinced themselves, I really hate my sin, I really am going to try to quit my sin, but they leave themselves an out. And consequently, they are subject to temptation. Now, the temptation here would have been go back to the magic incantations of the past. Uh, verse 19 uh, says, Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. They burned their books. That made it not only impossible to go back to the books to find out what the magic incantations would be that they thought they could control the world with, but it was a public declaration to everybody so that if they did go back, they would be appearing as hypocrites. It made it much more difficult for them to, uh, to go back. 
Uh, today, the occult has come back into the church through New Age medicine, through certain kinds of piercings and body modifications, through clothing and music. A lot of the rock and country music, you look at the words that are on there, man, it is, it is definitely occultic. Uh, a lot of drugs and illicit sex and the demonic and bad attitudes. And yet the, the music is so uh, attractive to some Christians that they, they drink of it very, very deeply. All of that gives you not only legal ground for Satan to attack you, but it also opens up your flesh to be much stronger. This passage indicates there was a remarkable break that the church made with every facet of the occult. Now, I think if there was book burning today, it would have to go beyond book burning. You'd have to burn your, your books and magazines and CDs and videos and, uh, you know, maybe even getting rid of the TV until you'd learned how to control that or putting, uh, putting things, uh, hedges in place. Way back, I used the illustration of the cartoon strip, uh, Kathy, and forgive me for repeating this one too, but Kathy and her friend are sitting together with Kathy eating a donut, and the first caption says, yum, 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 and she's just the picture of bliss. Next caption shows her crying and saying, why, 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 24 hours of willpower done in by one donut, unbelievable. I keep thinking I'll change, and then I do exactly the same thing, every day the exact same rut. I get up, give myself the big motivational speech, feel self-righteous for two hours, eat a donut. Why do I even bother with the preamble? Why not just get up, eat the donut, and be done with it? Why not just leave a box of donuts next to the bed so I won't have to waste time getting up and pretending I'm not going to have one? Why not just go to sleep with a donut in my mouth so that I don't even have to bother waking up before I start chewing? <laughs> and her friend asks her, why not just keep the donuts out of your house, Kathy? And Kathy's response, what? And let them think they're winning? <laughs> so with her besetting sin, she was not willing to burn her bridges. Can you see that? She wanted to pretend like she was fighting against sin, but still keep close enough where when it gets uncomfortable, she can, she can get it. And I've counseled people who have committed adultery and one of the requirements I've always made is you have to burn your bridges, absolutely. One person was unwilling to give the name of the, the person that she had committed adultery with, which indicated a total lack of willingness to deal with the issue. Another person was unwilling to give up the uh, key to the apartment and saying, if you're saying you're repenting, why are you not willing to give up the key to the apartment? Uh, another couple was unwilling uh, for uh, uh, all four of us, in other words, the, the, the partners who were sinned against and the guilty partners to all meet together in a room so that we could strategize on how this would never happen again. I don't do this to, just to make people uncomfortable and because I get joy out of, you know, tormenting people in this way. No, it's an absolute essential. And it's uncomfortable for me. Wow, is it uncomfortable to meet with the offended spouses who didn't even know about this. But I'll tell you what, every time that we have done that, it has been successful. It's been such a traumatic, hard event and a burning of bridges that it set them sailing forward where they need to be. But a lot of people aren't willing to do that. They're scared to burn their bridges. And with that kind of a lack of seriousness, it's guaranteed there's going to be a relapse. So no matter what your sin may be, viewing pornography, stealing, cheating, whatever it may be, burn your bridges. It will be worthwhile. And it'll make you psychologically prepared to fight to the death where there's no backing out. Fifth mark of an overcomer is a willingness to make sacrifices in order to do the right thing. Now, this was an enormous sacrifice. We already kind of looked at this uh, uh, previously where it says they counted up the value of them. It totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. We saw that piece of silver, denarius, was worth uh, an average man's wages for one day. And so if you translated it into modern day's wages, if you just took a salary of eight bucks an hour, that would be $3.2 million that they burned up. Massive bonfire. And they did not take the attitude we saw last time that you know, let's sell this. 
on eBay and make some money for the church. They did not want anybody else polluted with that either. It was a definitive break with the past, even though it was expensive. No rationalizing whatsoever. And there are sacrifices that God calls us to make as well. Now, sometimes the sacrifices are just working hard. You know, just hard work and some people are lazy. Other times it's sacrificing our sleep or the difficulty in resisting sexual temptation or the sacrifice of having the world thinking you're weird. You know, the, the shame or the scoffing of the world. Sometimes it is a cost of burning books, very literally, CDs, videotapes. But for an overcomer, it is all worthwhile. Okay, He's committed no matter what the cost to reputation, to finances, to time, to effort, to sleep, to whatever. And in the movie, uh, we saw that, uh, you know, Caleb made a lot of sacrifices. But, you know, some people are so into the cult of self-worship, so into self-gratification and comfort, they're not willing to make these sacrifices. You've got to deal with that issue of self-sacrifice if you're going to make it. You've got to deal with that issue. In uh, the book of Hebrews... There's a verse that I frequently use with people who have difficulty with this, and and they're complaining. They're saying, oh, it's so hard fighting against sin. And he says, you have not yet resisted to the shedding of blood. In effect, he is saying, give me a break. Where are your wounds? You say you're fighting against sin? Where is the sacrifice? Where is the pain? I don't see any evidence that you've really fought or sacrificed like a soldier would fight. Where is blood? I want to see a little bit of blood on your uniform before you can say you've really fought against sin. That's, in effect, what he has said. And I think many times we do not take this issue of fighting very seriously. So evaluate yourself. Do you have this mark of an overcomer? If not, pray that God, by his grace, would give you a willingness to crucify self and to sacrifice for the Lord. Now, one man told me that He knew pornography was his weakness and he traveled a lot. And so what he did, he could not burn his bridges because he had to travel from motel to motel. But what he did is he called ahead, asked them to disconnect the TV. And if they could not, he physically disconnected it. He he wanted to have at least one extra step, you know, before not just the, the flip of a button. And he got an accountability partner and he told him, I want you tomorrow to ask me what I did, whether I viewed a movie or I don't want to even be opening up the TV because I know it's just a weakness for me. So it wasn't a complete burning of bridges. He couldn't, but he put hedges that were in place. The fifth and the sixth marks require being in the Scriptures. Verse 20 says not only that the Scripture grew in their lives, but it conquered them. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Now, what does it mean that the word of the Lord grew? It obviously doesn't mean they added new pages to the Scripture day by day. Okay? It doesn't mean that the, the Word is being added. It means that the Word is being added to our lives. That's what it's talking about. And so Psalm 119 says, Thy Word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. If you're not memorizing the Scripture every day, not, Christians really ought to do that. That is not legalism. That I can show you Tons of scriptures that indicate that. If you're not memorizing scripture at least every week, but you should be doing it every day, the Word of God's not growing in you daily. If you're not meditating upon the Word, it's not growing in you daily. In verse 20, it's obvious the Word of God took a larger and larger portion of these people's hearts. On the other hand, a lessening of an appetite for the Word is an indication you're in serious trouble. Here's how Peter worded it. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. He's saying, if you are really a a born-again Christian, a newborn babe, God will grant you a hunger for the word. And just as a baby who can't drink is sick, has to have some intervention in his life, a Christian who does not have this hunger for the Word of God, getting into the Word of God, he needs intervention. He is sick. He's going to be falling. Do you have a hunger for the Word of God? Is it growing in your life? And then lastly, Scripture finds good soil to grow in in your life. God's Word grew. It prevailed in their lives. Why? Because it was not just heard. It was responded to. 
Do you pray every day that God would plant His seed in your the seed of the Word in your heart? Do you pray that He would have His way in your lives? That He would conquer your heart? Do you pray every day for the filling of the Holy Spirit? You need His Spirit if you're going to be successful. Pray that He would... Here was David's prayer. Open thou mine eyes that I might behold wonderful things out of your law. He said, uh, show me if there is any wicked way in me. Show me, Lord. I want to be holy. Show me. So as God puts the spotlight in your life, resolve anytime He shows a stone, a weed, anything that's choking out the Word, and Scripture says there's cares of the life, there's riches, there's many things that can choke out the Word, you're going to be radical and get rid of it. Make your heart ready for the Word to grow. So those are the marks of an overcomer. The fear of the Lord, motivation to please God, getting rid of a facade Christianity, uh, burning your bridges, willing to sacrifice. You know, I really should have put another point in there because a big part of what we were talking about is willingness to crucify your pride. That's a big one. So just add another point in there, willingness to crucify your pride, willingness to sacrifice, memorizing, meditating upon the Word of God, making the soil of your heart conducive to growth. Uh, let's quickly go to Revelation 2, and I'm not going to spend much time on this, but let's see how many in Ephesus lost some of those marks and began to get into the danger zone. As I mentioned earlier, this was written about 10 uh, years later, about the length of time we've existed as a church. And what John is saying is, yes, you guys have all kinds of good things. You've got a lot of great stuff. You're persevering. I mean, there's a lot of great things going on in your life. But verse 4, he says, you've lost your first love. And verse 5 says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. They had fallen from something. They had fallen from their former radical Christianity. They still had a lot of areas that were right, but there was a lot that was missing that kept them from being overcomers. Now, in one sense, the reverse of every point we looked at under section number one is a relapse sign as well. So, I don't know, I, I really haven't crafted this outline very well. You can just think of point uh, Roman numeral two as additional relapses, and all of these can be signs of an overcomer as well, uh, however you want to group them. But under point A... I just want to reinforce, these guys were not sleazeballs. These were good Christians. It says in verse 1, he had Christ walking in their midst. They were disciplined. They had a good reputation. They ministered to others. They had endurance. They hated some of the grosser sins. And the point is that even godly, mature Christians can fall if any of these points are true in their lives. So let's look at them very quickly. First mark is a loss of that deep first love for God. Uh, those of you who came to the the, the movie yesterday, um, Fireproof, um, uh, you know exactly what was going on there. In marriage, there was the, this loss of the first love, and it was only as he began doing the first works that we'll look at in just a sec that God enabled the first love to grow. But you know what? If we lose our first love for God, there's far more serious repercussions than if you lose your first love for your spouse. Far more serious uh, repercussions. Now, if you grieve over this loss of love, there's hope for you. It's an evidence that God's grace is at work in your life. The fact, oh Lord, I used to have such a close relationship. David had this over and over. He grieved when he lost his first love and God would restore it to him again. Point C, indifference to the loss of close relationship with God. Verse 5 says, remember therefore from where you have fallen, implying they, they weren't even thinking about the changes that had taken place. It's one thing to have lost a sense of God's closeness, to be grieved about it, like David was. It's quite another to not even be thinking about it. And the early chapter uh, of uh, Ephesus was phenomenal, just phenomenal Christianity. And so those changes came so slowly that they didn't even notice it. Indifference. That's a danger signal. Another mark of relapse it's not just indifference, being utterly unaware that you don't have your first love. Utterly unaware that you need to repent, that you've got issues. And perhaps some of you used to be grieved over sin, bothered you. Now you've come to a place, if you even do confess your sins, it's just kind of a, a rote confession. That's what was happening in Fireproof between the husband and the wife. They gradually gradually got to a place where they didn't even recognize... They recognized the other partner's sins. They didn't even recognize the sins that were in uh, their own lives. It's always somebody else's fault. 
And then finally, a slackening zeal in the first works. Uh, Verse 5 says, Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, the first works, same analogy as first love. It's the love that a newlywed has for each other. And the first works basically are all of the good deeds that newlyweds do for each other. They like to serve each other, get each other coffee, you know, say nice things to each other, give flowers, all of that kind of stuff. And that's exactly what was going on in that fireproof thing when they had that love dare. Is that what it's called? The love dare. Forty days, you know, they're going through of doing something for the spouse, not expecting anything uh, in return. And God says, that's what we need to do in our marriage with Him. We need to do the first works. We need to spend time with Him and serve Him in various ways and seek to please Him and basically devote ourselves to Him. It's the first works that keep the first love alive. And it's the first love that keeps us from being vulnerable for relapse. Now, some of you may have wished that I had dug a little bit deeper into the intriguing issues of demonism and spiritual warfare with Satan. But you know what? Our warfare against our flesh is so linked to spiritual warfare. I think this is probably the most important thing we could think about. And I don't know what your besetting sins are, but I do know that Jude has promised God can keep you from stumbling. doesn't matter what they are. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, God can give you victory and make you overcomers through Christ. And it is worthwhile. These 12 principles are principles I hope you take home, you pray over, and you say, Lord, make these a reality in my life. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for the blood of Christ that cleanses us from our sins. Thank you for the story of Hosea, where he was so forgiving, even to his adulterous wife, and brought her back. Thank you, Father, that your love has been the same with us. And Father, I pray that you would keep every person here from relapse into sin. Give them the marks of an overcomer and make them so grateful, overwhelmed with your love, your grace, your forgiveness, your kindness, your tenderness with us. When we have, as that movie talked about yesterday, spit in your face, as it were, and uh, taken you for granted and failed to do the first works and to have the first love. May our hearts be on fire for you and our lives be completely sanctified and set apart to you. We know, Father, we can only do this by your grace. So refresh us day by day and may there be a continual response as we reflect back to you the grace, the love, the faith that you have poured into our lives. And may you receive the honor and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.